This podcast was recorded before Ulster's announcement that Skulk van der Merwe has left the province. Another unhelpfully timed player departure. More on that next week, but for now... Hello everyone and welcome to another edition of the Ulster Rugby Roundup. I'm your regular host Gareth Hanna and with me are Jonathan Bradley. Hello, hi Alec. And Adam McAndrew. Hey guys. If you're not fussed on listening to my intros, I don't blame you, but why not use the next 30 seconds to go onto your podcast listening app, SoundCloud, iTunes or others are available and leave us a lovely review, it would be very much appreciated. While you're all rushing off to do that, I'll tell you that this week we're looking back on another narrow victory, this one over Cardiff Blues, and we preview the second Champions Cup window of the campaign, the double header against Scarlets. I still get the air, so called the Heineken Cup, mate. In your listener questions, we slice Leinster in two, consider match officials, and look at shopping lists. Then we have the club roundup. But first, Ulster 16, Cardiff 12, another squeaky bum game. Actually, before that, that was a very polished intro. It was good, wasn't it? I really enjoyed that. Thank you. Thank you, Adam. That's what happens when I actually make time to prep the podcast properly. <laughs> <laughs> so we should always record uh, this late in the afternoon, is what you're saying? Give this me a is bit of time. Peak, peak time. Okay. Yeah, this is good. But, uh, yes, the rugby we're here to talk about, really, rather than my intros. But, uh, yeah, a narrow one for Ulster, and they were brought through by John Cooney again. Yeah, it was narrow and it wasn't flashy in any way, shape or form, but they got the job done. And I think that's one of the things that a lot of people have forgotten in the aftermath. You know, this was a game where Ulster were very far from their best and yet they still managed to grind out the win against a defence that they were really struggling to break down. And in a game where for the first 20 minutes or so Cardiff looked far the better team especially with the ball you know their passing was very crisp and their movement was really good and I I think the fact that Ulster did manage to battle through uh, shows a lot about how this team has sort of grown because you got to bear in mind that they still have a lot of young guys in that team but they're grinding out wins and that's going to be very key for a lot of those guys development you know the the fact that in a game where they were struggling, they didn't sort of sit back and and just let the game pass them by. They stepped it up in that second half at points, and especially getting that mall going was big in the second half. That was a huge part of their success. So I thought, well, well, I'm not going to say everything's great and everything's fantastic just because they won. You know that there's still a lot to work on from that uh, game, but I think a lot of people have forgotten that. Ulster did win that, and they showed a lot of battling qualities, which I was quite impressed with. Would you agree, Jonathan, that the positives sort of outweigh the negatives? I mean, obviously the one they're sitting well in the group, but in the sort of uh, general scheme of things? I think, obviously, the win is the most important thing, but you take that out, and I suppose what worries you really is the fact that it was very similar to the Scarlet's games in a lot of ways, in that the line speed from Cardiff really just negated Ulster's ability to hold onto the ball in any shape or form. And you would worry that maybe the book is out on Ulster at the minute of that's how you play them. Line speed in general is something that we see so much more of now. You look at the successful international teams and even looking at the way Ireland are able to beat the All Blacks, you know, you look at just the importance that's being placed on line speed throughout World Rugby. 
So obviously it's a natural concern if Ulster are struggling to combat opposition line speed because you're going to see it so often. And especially if other teams can see now that that's the way to beat them. So you need to find a way to one, hold on to the ball more and to vary your attacking game more to give the opposition more to think about. We saw that a little bit more, I thought, when Johnny McPhillips came on. Mm-hmm. But when you then ally that to the fact that the points that Ulster scored to win the game came via penalties, one of which came after a brainless yellow card really gave um, Ulster that foothold into the game. Um, obviously the molded as well as Adam mentioned provided a bit of a foothold but the worry is just that just from an attacking point of view they didn't do enough Cardiff almost looking at that yellow card you could say Cardiff lost the game rather than Ulster won it in the second half it's really concerning that it took Ulster so long to work out that the line speed was what was causing the problem because for the first 35 or so minutes they just kept doing the same things you got to bear in mind that their try again wasn't down to them breaking down that card of defense it was down to Stu McCoskey taking a quick tap tap or uh, tap penalty and then Kieran Treadwell you could say it was great skill to kick it forward and pick it up I think he was trying to catch it and it bounced <laughs> off his leg rather than anything else thank you very much but, oh no I, I don't I, think so like, I don't think he was trying to kick ahead but to be fair to him I think he did very well for whatever it is, six foot four, to fall to the ground, <laughs> gather the ball and slide over the line, all virtually in one motion. At the same time, you know, that that wasn't Ulster breaking down Cardiff's defensive line. That was Stu McCluskey taking advantage of Cardiff not getting set quick enough and then Treadwell kicking on. So Ulster spent 35 minutes of that game not knowing how to break Cardiff down at all. Finally, Billy Burns decides to chip over the top and it works because there was a Darth of space in behind there that Cardiff had no one sweeping in behind um, and then they didn't try that again for the rest of the game Johnny McPhillips tried one kick over the top but that was on a penalty advantage so what concerns me more is the fact that Ulster don't seem to have anyone or didn't seem to have anyone in that back line who was sort of thinking to themselves right how, how do we change things up? Like like Johnny said, they weren't thinking like how to vary the attack. Um, and I think that they didn't quite learn that the chip over the top was a good option. I think it was a bit more varied um, once John McPhillips came on. I think he, uh, I thought he played pretty well, um, again, to be honest, off mm-hmm. the bench. Um, the chip over the top is something else they're doing a lot, but they're not really regaining possession. We saw them regain possession once with it on um, Saturday, but for I suppose for it to work as an effective tactic, you have to be able to regain possession afterwards. And it was just for me, it was all too similar to the Scarlets game, and that's the worry because it wasn't a one-off. Um, the ball retention was the main thing of. If you can't hold onto the ball, then all you're doing is inviting the other team to attack you. And we've seen that Ulster defence isn't to a point now. They defend it relatively well, but they're still not at a point where they can invite pressure onto themselves because very few rugby teams are good enough defensively to succeed without the ball. You mentioned it earlier, the yellow card had such a massive burn on the game. Um, The tackle, well, 
tackle on Ross Kane, what was it, by Davis, wasn't it? Seb Davis, yeah. So Davis, so he looked like really surprised when he was getting the yellow card, but like he doesn't have any sort of basis for being surprised, does he? One one of the things I didn't realize at the time, because we we can't hear the ref, I thought he was just looking for a shoulder charge, but whenever he actually gives him the yellow card, he he effectively says it's a cheap shot, and I'm not having that. Um, which I think is fair enough. You know, you, you don't want to reduce the game to guys taking cheap shots at each other. Um, and I think it was, you know, Ross Kane is... He, he's not even sort of part of the ruck. While he's sort of standing at the side of it, he's not actually part of it. And Davies just decides to come straight into the back of him. So, uh, on the yellow card, I, I can see where John Melville is not happy with it. But at the same time, I, I think the ref's well within his rights to give it I think the the bigger one that he was complaining about was the penalty at the end where Cardiff are underneath the Ulster posts and Rory Best somehow wins a turnover having gone in at the side and only had his hands on the ball for about half a second you know that was a bit of a strange penalty and having watched it back I think Ulster were very lucky to get that penalty it, it was a bit of a a bit of a varied refereeing performance. Uh, I don't think he was quite as bad as Mulvihill makes him out to be. Uh, Stuart Berry, the ref from South Africa, but there were there were a few decisions I can see where they would be contentious. Well, let's hear a little bit of what the Cardiff coach had to say about the referee before we, we talk about it anymore. Look, the way the game was officiated towards the end of the game was, wasn't right. And if, you, if you've got a TMO and a referee and two officials, surely some of those breakdown decisions have to be better. Clearly, towards the end of the game, we clawed our way back into it. They're a good team, Ulster, and that's why we're behind at the end. Clawed our way back into it, under the goalpost there. Three players off their feet, one in particular off his feet. Hands weren't even on the ball. The ball was at the back of our ruck. But the referee calls holding on. He was in the wrong position. He didn't see it. They didn't go to TMO. You've got decisions where we get we get a yellow card for someone cleaning someone out. It wasn't a shoulder charge. It was a clean out, and the guy wrapped his arms. But their 12 was allowed to come in, in that little push and shove, grab our nine, initiate with his head into our nine, which is a headbutt and a red card. So instead of having a red card there, we, we yellow carded. Down here, when Thomas Wimmers makes the breakdown, the ball's knocked out of his hand. Jason Harry's going for the ball, he gets tackled by McCloskey five minutes out from the try line without the ball. No penalty try, no TMO, scrum. So clearly, we weren't happy with the way the game was officiated tonight. And I'm starting at a stage where I'm sick of it. The first three games, I've spoken to the referee's boss. He has told me on email and on my phone that if the game was officiated properly, we would have won the first three games. Now, there are big stakes in rugby, and people lose jobs, and players lose their roles, and it has to be better than it was. So we was pretty annoyed then that Stuart McCroskey didn't uh, get a card then for his part in that brawl. What did you make of that in the, the whole incident? I thought that was a strange uh, a strange hill to die on in, the, in your rant <laughs> about referees, because um, it didn't look to me like there was anything in that at all. Like... Um, to be honest, the thing that I was more paying attention to was Nick Williams just lifting people and laughing at them. 
just I don't know if he was trying to play peacemaker. That is Nick Williams, or just fi- find the whole thing very amusing <laughs> that there were all these backs piling in trying to um, have fisticuffs. He was just running around laughing and picking people up. Um, like I don't think, and as the video will uh, bear out, I don't think it was a headbutt. There was no contact there. I don't think anybody really even was claiming that there was contact. No. But um, he might have just caught the quiff of Lloyd <laughs> Williams' hair. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but the penalty at the end, I thought, was a pretty bad call. Like, um, whenever you're watching it live and there's that many sort of bodies in the way, it was tough to see who was actually involved in the turnover. And like Nick Timoney emerged from underneath the pile of bodies so late that until I saw the replay, I actually thought it might have been him that turned the ball over. And it's only when you see the replay that he's just there in the middle of this, <laughs> not a- not able to roll away, but not rolling away either. And then, as Adam says, best wasn't on the ball for p- particularly long. So I could see the gripe there. Um, and also, Eric O'Sullivan's tackle that saved the try, like unbelievable tackle, but then in the aftermath of that, Ulster clearly knocked the ball on. It comes back then off O'Sullivan's head. So it either should have been a scrum to Cardiff or if they had have played advantage, then McCloskey would have got done for an early tackle and a penalty try would have been given. So those two instances were 100%. I thought like to focus on the McCloskey hmm. um, non-red card was odd because it, it, it undermined the wider point that was being made and whenever I like posted the article on Twitter yesterday, I think people thought that it was a point being made in isolation, whereas what Mulvihill's point was really was talking about the officiating in a wider sense and talking about the conversations that he's had with um, Greg Garner um, about the standard of officiating in the Pro 14, and he revealed that um, through those conversations... They, you know, they lost their first three games this season, and through those conversations with Greg Garner, um, he was told that they would have beat Leinster, Bennett, and Anne Zebra if the games had been officiated um, <clears throat> properly. I think was the word that yeah. he used. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you know, when you're talking about fine margins, that's at least nine points. In the table, you can imagine why he has a, a chip on his shoulder yeah. at the minute. Plus, <laughs> plus, you could argue this game on Saturday, so that's twelve points. Another decision then that was made that the Ulster fans didn't seem very happy with was the decision to award Cardiff's first try. But uh, there was absolutely nothing for the fans to be, to be annoyed no, about that. Really, was there? I mean, you could slow it down frame by frame and zoom in inch by inch, but. You know, that was pretty conclusive grounding, in my opinion. I think it was, it was just because the ball came out and the way, yeah. that it, the way that it squirted out obviously made it look like he dropped it, but I think it was mm. the pressure, the angle that it comes out would make you think yeah. that it was the pressure of the ground. It's one of those ones where you've seen it in the past where there's, you know, the ball squirts out and a referee goes back and, back and looks at it and it turns out like by a minuscule amount the 
player has knocked it on. So it's worth a cry, but you know, I I don't think it was. Well, yeah, I mean, there was any question. You look at that Stuart McCluskey tryout and uh, Teresa, Anderson, obviously, yeah. um, as how marginal these calls can be. Yeah. So mm. and and oh, it was nice to hear a bit of noise about something. <laughs> we had a question about that uh, on the listener questions this week somebody asking who wasn't at the game was just asking what the atmosphere was like because it didn't sound all that great on TV it I thought it was dead Like it was really quiet I thought I'd been in rowdy or libraries like um, <laughs> kind of raves are you going to it's people reading your book just having <laughs> a whale of a time <laughs> <laughs> Queen's come exam time at the, but things got sketchy in there um, I don't know like this is all very subjective because what equates to a good atmosphere for some people is not what equates to a good atmosphere for for other people. That's just um, that goes without saying, I suppose. But just in terms of noise level, it was very quiet, noticeably so. Um, Has that been a theme for this season, or was this sort of a, a noticeable difference in a one-off? Sort it's of. It's. I, th- I think it's certainly been an awful lot quieter as a wider trend over the last sort of three or four years really but obviously things can change very quickly like you look at Ireland v, um, Ireland v Argentina which was a really flat atmosphere and then Ireland against New Zealand a week later <laughs> and the atmosphere was unbelievable so it's not like um, these things um are often particularly consistent. It was just, a, it was probably noticeably quiet. It could have been a number of factors. It was a Saturday game, early enough kickoff, start of December. A lot of people obviously starting to miss games for Christmas parties, Christmas shopping, things like that. Um, and Sat- again, Saturday at 3 pm is not a rugby kickoff. Well, see, I remember like, you know, the Toulon game. Um, that was half one, I think it was. Which was even earlier, and like yeah. I remember thinking then that that was sort of the, one of the first times where you noticed that the atmosphere was so noticeably quieter mm. than it used to be. But then, but then, yeah, then you, you've also had the Claremont game, yeah. which was a Saturday as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, I do think, and I don't wish to be disparaging about anybody. And again, these things are all subjective. And I'm worried about what's coming here. <laughs> what, down the town that I'm there's a hot take you're about to say. And what makes for a good atmosphere for some people, as I say, doesn't always make for a good atmosphere for other people. And really, I'm there to work. I'm not there for the atmosphere either. But I do think whenever Ulster are attacking the line and then you hear, you start to hear the chance of Ulster, Ulster starting up and then they're drowned out by a band playing... I'll tell me ma. I think you've got a real time you've got a real timing issue there mm-hmm. because the traditional points of emphasis in an atmosphere are obviously when the team is attacking or defending on the line and the pressure's building one way or the other, but you're now hearing when you would have heard and it's obviously not the most popular chant, but it's it's on it's, the, it's, it's undeniably <laughs> part of the atmosphere, where you would have heard that repetitive Ulster, Ulster, Ulster. It's almost being, you know, it's having his knees taken out from under it because of mm-hmm. when the band is playing. And I understand why the band is there because 
there are people that like it and people that like what it that brings but it's like is there no <laughs> <laughs> but it's a timing thing you know that i think it should be used to fill lulls in the atmosphere yeah. not um i right, so just a, a yeah uh but not not striking up whenever something's about to happen. Yeah. Like that. But That's again, fair. these things are all all subjective. And you, 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 don't, you don't hear that anywhere else. You don't hear teams like pumping music over the loudspeakers whenever their team's yeah. close to the line scoring. In the same way that you don't expect the band to start playing whenever Ulster are about to score. Yeah. I suppose we have to mention as well that performances, results, expectations in general haven't been as good in recent years and that's this, probably yeah, the biggest factor. Because this is, um, I think it was part of the same thread on the Twitter conversation of do, and even like Roy Best mentioned it during the week, if you know, it really does lift the players when oh, yeah, there's ec- right. you know yeah. extra bums on seats, I think was the phrase that he used. And again, well, it's... it's enjoyed a, that. Enjoyed <laughs> it's... Uh, it's almost a chicken and the egg situation. Like, is is it up to the players to lift the crowd, or is it up to the crowd to lift the players? Like, it was a it was a pretty flat match. I enjoyed it. From a, I find it quite interesting of what Cardiff were doing, how well that negated what Ulster were trying to do, and Ulster's sort of belated attempt to adjust to that was interesting enough tactically, but it wasn't the kind of um, thing that's going to lift you off your seat. Let's be honest. So. It is just that relationship of, you know, what what is meant to come first? Does the performance lift to the atmosphere yeah. or does the atmosphere lift the performance? Answers on a postcard. It was Stephen Gilmore who had asked about that. A couple of, well, one player in particular that I want to talk about before we move on is Nick Williams coming back. He got a, a good reception. I assume he got a good reception from Michael Lowry anyway. Right. Every, everyone loves Nick Williams until he sits you down on the seat of your pants. Um... <laughs> I've known that Nick was loved when he was here and he's, he's still loved whenever he was substituted. He got one of the loudest cheers of the night, which is ironic. Um, but <clears throat> now, one of the things that I like about what Cardiff are doing is they're not uh, utilising him solely as a big ball carrier. They like to use him as a weapon at the breakdown as well mm-hmm. because that's not what you expect him to do. But he's actually quite effective at it because when he gets on the ball, he's a big unit. He's hard to shift. So once he has his hands on the ball, there's not too many guys in the world of rugby are going to be able to get him off it. See, I wasn't sure whether I was imagining this or not, but whenever you watch Cardiff, he does seem to be more of a presence at the breakdown than he was when he was here. And it's interesting because I thought that he had a really, really good game. And certainly for the first 20 minutes, you could almost see people sizing up the um, his performance, weighing it against the performance of... Marcel could see it and you could see that you know you could see the hot takes coming the think pieces <laughs> um, but then I thought Marcel went on to have a very good game but again a different type of game because um, whether it's the injuries or whatever Marcel isn't the explosive player or isn't putting in the explosive performances that we first saw out of him whenever he first arrived but what he has done is completely changed his point of emphasis in the game where he's now become so much of a breakdown operator and Ulster's try essentially came off a turnover um, that he stole at, mm. um, at the breakdown. 
and then he, I think he had two others and um, he's far and away leading the team in uh, turnovers this yeah. season so it, it that was an interesting thing to look at as well the, prob- the problem is and this isn't Marcel's fault and I don't think it's Ulster's fault either that's not what Ulster need while that, while it's great that they have someone as good on the floor as Marcel is, they need the big ball carrying number eight that they signed him to be, and unfortunately he can't be that anymore because of the injuries. The injuries are hampering his ability to be that explosive ball carrier for X number of times during a game. So while he's still an extremely effective player, and he's a great player to have in that back row, that they almost need someone else, and I see. Arno Botho has signed a new deal with Munster today that'll keep him there for next season as well. The performances that he's putting in is exactly the kind of person Ulster want anchoring the back of their scrum. Yeah, that's not worked out. No, <laughs> not at all. To, to put that mildly, that uh, <laughs> signing John Dazel instead of Arno Botho because Arno Botho <laughs> wouldn't play enough games. Yeah, that's, that's not worked out. Yeah. Um, let's just move on <laughs> uh, Ian Nagel got uh, am I saying that right it's, a, it's yeah. another yeah, rugby player no, no, that, that seems to have that was fair. difficult names to pronounce anyhow another uh, decent display off the, the bench from him his first game at Kingspan I can't remember whether we really talked about it last, time, last no. week did we? I don't the, think we did but how's the, it getting on the best part was during that wee fracas Nagel's just wandering around, having a good time while everyone gets involved. And then all of a sudden, at the snap of a finger, he just goes straight into the middle and uh, gets involved. It's absolutely brilliant. Um, uh, okay. you want on a night he, out a few problems. <laughs> <laughs> he was um, good. He was good off the mm-hmm. bench, and he was good off the bench the week before. Yeah. Uh, so that's too good, Cameron. Look, I think we sort of said at the time that um, it wasn't really... A signing that was going to excite too many people, but that's two good performances from him. And he, I don't know whether you would count it as a line over or a line out steal, but he certainly um, um, played his part at that line out that Cardiff turned over. Like, so um, it was encouraging, obviously, mm-hmm. as encouraging as it can be for a player that's not going to be here in X amount of months. He, yeah. He's a guy who's had no game time down at Leinster and you've got to bear that in mind you know he's, yeah. he's not he, he may be match fit to a certain degree playing all Ireland league or with Leinster's A team but mm. he hasn't had any opportunities at the senior level so you've got to give him a little bit of time to get up to speed and then I think he, he's just one of those guys who just needs a bit of game time to prove himself. And you know what? He, he's not getting chances at Leinster. And I'm, I'm really jumping the gun here. But say he gets a bit of game time here and he starts to put in some really good performances. You know, you, you're looking at maybe at the end of the season, you want to maybe keep him on or see, see what the deal is there. But he is someone who could be playing for a contract here. And that that can drive guys on to some really good performances. But look, that that is very early assessments. You know, we, we've got a long way to go, of course, but, you know, that that is worth bearing in mind in terms mm-hmm. of the kind of performances he, he wants to be turning in here. 
it's more of a American sportsism, but the danger with people who play well when they're looking for a contract is how they play after they get the contract, <laughs> not, not how they play <laughs> when they're looking. Well, it's not even American sports. You guys at Glenavon guilty of that. In the play. Anyway, <laughs> um, first listener question then from Ian Frizzell Ulster. We're not on the listener question section, by the way. This is just a wee bonus one to whet your appetite for later. Uh, I thought we were getting ready to wrap up. <laughs> Ulster's style of play has regressed in the last couple of games, and the amount of kicking in brackets the ball away seems to have increased whether apart do you think this is down to players not being comfortable with an offloading game it's funny that he says weather apart because this came up in conversation um two weeks ago i think um and the answer was predictably that the conditions haven't been just haven't been conducive mm-hmm. to the way that we were told Ulster want to play and not to jump over your point, but just remember for the Benetton game as well, they were preparing for a really wet game, yeah. and it ended up being quite sunny. But it was too late to completely change their game oh, yeah. plan, so they had to put they had to play like it was going to be rainy. I think Racing obviously inside was the last time that we saw them play in the way that um, they talked about playing. But mm. the issue with talking about these conditions is the fact that. We live in Northern Ireland, so a huge amount of your rugby yeah. is played yeah. in bad conditions. That's just uh, that's just the nature <clears throat> of it. You know, we may not have good conditions again until just April. <laughs> you know, um, the la- the season might end in April. I think yeah, the last game of yeah. the season time to be in April. Yeah, so it could be the last month of the season before you see mm. the sun again. Like you know, um, good. Yeah, that's cheery. <laughs> Ian, Ian did say weather aside so you haven't no, really I, answered the question no, I, 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 I understand that he no. said weather aside but that, that was just yeah. whenever else, I can't even remember who it was whenever we asked somebody in Ulster about the changing style of play over the last couple of weeks weather was cited as the issue yeah, again yeah, yeah. Um, the conditions on Saturday while it wasn't raining during the game um, two different players came out and talked about the greasiness of the surface, mm. the greasiness mm. of the ball. We saw a lot of knock-ons, especially from the forwards um, when they were trying to get involved in the in the carrying game. Certainly. Yeah. Um, so, do you think there is any sort of um, credence to Ian's argument that players may not be comfortable? No, I think I think Ulster can play an offloading game. I think there is an amount of. Um, upskilling involved in any of these things like you read about what Pat Lamb did at Connacht when Dan McFarland was there you read about what Wayne Pivak did coming into Scarlet's obviously Stephen Jones playing a huge part of that as well um, and these methods do take time mm-hmm. so I wouldn't think at all that um, especially in a season where I think if you qualify for the Champions Cup again then you've hit your base target. I don't think that it would be seen that the players aren't comfortable with so we're going to abandon this and do something else when it's been such a consistent part of the ethos of uh, as much as he has been the you know the forwards coach. It's been a consistent part of the ethos of teams that Dan McFarland's been involved in. I, th- I think we always talk about how it's going to be a two, three-year plan to sort of get this squad to where they want it to be and to bring the youngsters through and that way it's maybe good to look at it as a two three year plan to get this game plan implemented as well and 
you know, you, you can't play that offloading game. The conditions at the weekend, as as Johnny said, it, it wasn't raining, but it was extremely slick and greasy. You can't play offloading rugby in that because the passes just won't stick mm-hmm. most of the time. So you have to adapt your game plan, and mm-hmm. you know, to, teams do that. Connacht under Pat Lamb didn't play offloading rugby every single week. It wasn't possible, especially in Galway. So you have to be able to adapt, and I think that's another thing that you're going to have to see from this Ulster team. You're going to have to see them being able to adapt to different game plans that aren't mm. always offloading, free-flowing, fast rugby. There there are going to be weeks where they won't play like this, and you've just got to you've just got to trust that they get the game plan right and they play it right. We'll just get back to that other style of play in April then. Um, <laughs> Ulster then at this stage of the season are sitting third in Pool B. They're tied on points with Scarlets who are second. They're six points ahead of Benetton. They're seven points ahead of Edinburgh. If you'd been offered that at the start of the season, you'd been absolutely bloody delighted. I think so, yes. There are certain results you obviously would have hoped uh, would have maybe turned out a bit better or um, might have turned out another way but in in terms of the results Ulster have had besides losing to Connacht at home you would have said they're probably on target for where they had hoped to be in terms of the games that they've played um, I'm trying to think now if, if there's any more maybe Johnny wants to No I, I was I literally just finished before we did this writing an article um, that mentioned this idea that Ulster level on points with Scarlets um, have won a game in the Champions Cup which Scarlets haven't done and yet if you were to put any money on either of them winning a trophy this season um, well you'd be setting that money on fire given that they would have to go through Leinster but um, <laughs> the be- <laughs> the better bet would be to take Scarlets and mm-hmm. it is a better bet and I think it is purely because of that eye test that we talk about in that when Ulster have lost, they've looked bad doing so. And when they've won, they haven't looked particularly convincing doing so. But at the same time, you know, Scarlets are in the, the last year of what will be known as the Wayne Pivak era, whereas Ulster are in the first year of what will be known as... Or, I suppose the McFarland what, era? I suppose <laughs> what will be known as the McFarland era either way, whether it's yeah. uh, good or ill-fated, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> if you're doing that bet, you'd have to do each way. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Each, each way but at, at the end of the day, I think Ulster are probably happy with where they are given the fixtures they've had and uh, how they maybe would have expected to have done. I mean, as I said, if you sat down at the start of the season, besides the Connacht result, and maybe one or two points here or there, you know, maybe getting a bonus point there or uh, not getting a bonus point somewhere else. Like, I don't think many people expected them to get three points from Cheetahs, but they expected them to get five points from Kings. You it's, know, it's, it's absolutely yes. just the nature of the game. So yes, exactly. Which is so, not no bad thing because you should be judged on the nature of your performances as much as the results if you're looking at or if you're looking for progression yeah mm. and uh, that's one of the key things that Ulster are this season the, but if Ulster it, managed to finish third in the pool the the nature of that will be quickly forgotten surely probably yes because you know we're building up into a Champions Cup weekend 
and nobody's really talking about how Ulster were 80 minutes away from not qualifying for the Champions Cup this year. You know, you forget these things fairly quickly. Um, third has to be the target, uh, not so much for the place in the playoffs because I, Ulster, I don't think, are good enough at present to go away to Glasgow and win or to go away to Munster and win or if Cardiff had got their refereeing decisions, John Mullen. Do not want to go to Munster. <laughs> <laughs> to go to Monster, um, no, absolutely not. <laughs> But, um, I don't know, do you not enjoy our drives down to Limerick? <laughs> well, I enjoy them more than you do because I don't have to drive, but um, <laughs> yeah. On to this weekend then, it's your big trip to Scarlet's. Are you all very excited? Are you going with Shane Todd? Long-time listeners of the podcast will remember that uh, you guys and Shane Todd were going to head up Nando's. In he, uh, he hasn't got back to us. I'm just looking forward to the Nando's. <laughs> what are you going to go for? I was there last week. I've got a wee double-checking pitta. Just, oh, no, just, I, I don't even get medium spice anymore. I just get like one of the wee rubbishy spices and then uh, I bulk it up to medium myself. You are like, I can't hack it. I know. I'll so they, can't don't, hack uh, it. they don't do a banana curry then? <laughs> no. I'll be giving away my culinary <laughs> secrets. <laughs> I, I go for the butterfly chicken. Uh, I've never had that actually. Oh, it's lovely. I'll have to give it a go. It's, it's just boneless chicken. Fair, fair. <laughs> yeah, I was telling, just for anybody wondering what a banana curry is like, it's absolutely fantastic. I was telling Jonathan there that I rarely cook with meat anymore. She and Todd impacted me. So, um, we, yeah, just cook yourselves with banana curry. It's lovely. Don't judge it before you've tried it. Anyhow, Scarlet's, uh, in terms of the team, Ulster have announced then that they're going to be without Alan O'Connor and Andy Warwick. We can expect Ian Henderson to come back in. But there are doubts over Billy Burns and Will Addison following their head injuries in the last game they were playing in. So, Will, a- we Will Addison will be playing this week. Oh, when did we hear that? He told me. <laughs> <laughs> well, fair then. <laughs> so, yeah, no, no, I was just chatting to him at halftime of the game last week and he said he he's passed all the HIA tests. So Happy days. Um, yeah, they were just resting him last week. Okay, fair. Well, we can expect then the full Irish contingent to be back and available again, which is yep. obviously a massive plus. Um, um, assume that there, those four then, in terms of the Irish players that hadn't started last week, if we think of Bez, Stockdale, Henderson and Addison, all four starting this week? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, they would certainly need to. Ian Henderson will have to because, well, we're saying this as we record, it does not appear that Ulster have altered their 41-man squad for this so with Alan O'Connor injured, Ian Nagel not registered, unless something has changed in the last hour. And um, we have asked about that. Well, we have asked, but we don't know. The EPCR have sent out their list of changes made to the squads. Um, Ulster don't feature on it, despite the fact that they've got three players who don't play for them anymore in their 41-man squad, um, which is a bit odd. Hmm. Odd indeed. <laughs> Um, we can assume they're not going to use any of those three players. Well, as it, back. As, <laughs> as it stands, we're, uh, we're more likely to see Chris Henry or John Daisel this weekend than we are Ian Nagel. <coughs> um, Kyle McCall um, is, has been playing for Inch the past two weeks in the All, in the All Ireland League. Uh, obviously, hasn't played hasn't played this season, but he's the only other registered loose head apart from Eric O'Sullivan that's fit. And still at Ulster because Rodney I use there and he plays for Newcastle now. So, 
<laughs> which is just a little bit of a problem. Which is a hindrance <laughs> to playing for Ulster this weekend. So it's going to have to be Eric O'Sullivan and Kyle McCall. I think it is my understanding that in an emergency they can change a front row after the deadline has passed the Tuesday 12 o'clock deadline. If no situation changes between the actual deadline and whenever you're potentially going to claim uh, an emergency, surely oh, presum- you can't just do that. Presumably they could say that the severity of Andy Warwick's injury or something like has that. Has increased. Yeah. Fair. Mm, very clever. You should work for them. That's for ingenious. Elster, that, yeah. would, that would be strange. <laughs> I don't think that would go down well. Um, well, you couldn't double job, really. Um, conflict of interest, probably. Uh, <laughs> from this double header, then away to Scarlets and then home to Scarlets. What sort of points return are are we looking at? And obviously, trying to limit Scarlets' points is uh, of of pertinence in the the tight group that they're in. We we say this all the time, but like five, I think would be huge. Um, for if I don't think that you need six because Leicester are really struggling so if you can take five then you're probably still alive for a quarter final assuming that you would have to win both probably taking nine or ten from the January games well let's let's see the right way round given that Leicester are struggling I mean you're more likely to win away at Leicester than you are to win away at Rossington the only problem is you would want to have the Scarlet's game first uh, sorry, the Scarlets came at home first, but yeah, if yeah. you beat them, they are out. Yeah, the, yeah, the thing is, if Ulster could win this week, and it's a big if because Scarlets are so good at home, they're in last chance saloon, um, so you know they have to win, they can't afford to lose. Um, so they're going to be really fired up. Lost 100% of their home games this year. <laughs> good point. Um <laughs> But yeah, if Ulster could win this weekend, then the Scarlets are out, and then they focus all they can focus all their energy in the Pro Fourteen, and there's a good chance we could see a shadow side coming to Belfast. Now, obviously that is a big if, but there's the incentive for Ulster this week. You pick up a massive win away from home in the Champions Cup in your Champions Cup pool, and you give the other team no incentive. Uh, to play the next week, so the 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 card is there for Ulster. This game is the the big one there this week, I suppose, because if Scarlets win this one, then they're thinking right, we're back in this. Yeah, I mean, in days gone by, if you lost your first two games, you were out. We've seen teams since Scarlets, I believe, included lose their first two games and still make the quarterfinals. Um. So it's not the it's not the death knell that it once was. Ulster have a lot of better, uh, like a much better chance this time though than the last time they went to Scarlets a couple of weeks ago, don't they? They do because they'll have a better team out, and I think as we've seen when Ulster play the top teams, even the top teams in the Pro Fourteen, um, their depth is better than Ulster's. So Ulster when they have a full-strength team out, the gap between themselves and the top teams is markedly smaller, I feel. Um, I mean, Lee Halfpenny's going to be out for them. Blade Thompson's going to be out for them. So those are two big players missing. Now, the caveat there is obviously that it looks like Jake Ball's coming back, looks like Samson Lee's coming back, and looks like James Davies is coming back. So it's certainly not a case of um, they're not 
um, targeting Europe. Anybody called Samson coming into the team is, is not good news for, <laughs> for for the opposite team. I'm just interested what Kittlester are going to wear this week. There's going to be a very red clash. Oh yeah, well obviously night. they can't wear their European kit. And they can't wear their regular home kit because... Just flip a coin and one of the teams go skins. <laughs> I don't know. I, presumably they'll have to wear their um, home kit. Or their Pro 14 kit, as it were. Well, that's that's the one I should get excited about ahead of the game anyway. Scarlet's could change. They could. They could. They don't quite have that Tequila Sunrise jersey anymore. Oh, so I miss that one. But it wouldn't be <laughs> the as... The one they wore on that Sunday afternoon. I was going to say, they won that game. Yeah. Maybe they blinded the Ulster players. <laughs> that was some kit. I was going to go into a story about that game, but it's... Not for the podcast, quite <laughs> frankly. Intriguing. <laughs> we'll talk about that afterwards. <laughs> While we talk about that, you guys can listen to the Ludic. Since I've been here, going away, I remember Toulouse, um, Harlequins. Um, even that, my first Leicester game was quite close. So in Europe, we um, we tend, like, even though record, but we tend to, to play really well and guys really go for it. So I think we're going to go for it again and we have to. Like, it's this. In Europe, it's it's. I always say it's it's just something different about Europe. There's a lot of excitement, and um, you're playing against the best. Even though it's Scarlet, you know you're always going to play against the best in in Champions Cup. So it's it's awesome. It's very exciting, and um, it's it's going to be furious. Listener questions then. South Wales URSC friends of the podcast, and um, in the week that we're going to Wales, it seemed very fitting that we should take a question uh, from those guys. So they ask. From the supporters who often travel much further than us, can we begin to understand why the players do not give a team overhead clap acknowledgement to the travelling supporters at away matches? They suggest Willie Anderson should have a word with Dan McFarlane. Do we know why? Do the players not do that? And if so, why Why not? I think um, the vast majority of the away games that I go to cover Ulster end up losing. So I don't know whether that plays into it but they definitely did do a sort of lap around after Harlequins last year which they won mm-hmm. um, I don't know I, I really don't know um, I understand that basically Dan McFarland takes the start of a review of an Ulster performance under Dan McFarland starts with the immediate post-match debrief so the players are in more of a hurry to get to to get in after games now than I think they maybe once were. And then that's why now what you see is them coming out again afterwards. So I think after they've done that, they then go out to mm-hmm. the top of the tunnel and sign autographs and take pictures that way at home games. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, it's different for away games. You've got to bear in mind that rugby isn't like football where there's a specific yeah. section for away fans. You know, there can be away fans all around the ground. So you'd, so all, you'd almost have to go the whole way around the pitch. Which <laughs> exactly. If after you just... <laughs> doing a wee lap up yeah. monster after. Sh- shaped a bit of a, a tonguing yeah. could, uh, could look a bit silly if you're doing a lap of honour. And you've got to bear in mind, if you go over to the section where there's the most fans and applaud them and then go in, but there's a section of fans like over on the far side, just not quite as big. You know, what if you leave them out and only applaud the biggest section of fans? I, th- I think it's 
like r- rugby players aren't hard to find afterwards. You know, at, at Kingspan after a game, they all come out the same exit, and they're more than happy to pose for pictures and sign autographs. So it's it's not. I don't think they're doing it because they don't want to. I think it's just a case of, as Johnny said, they're going in for their post match debrief, and also you know that there are just times where it's better if you don't. Yeah. Look, if they beat Scarlets this weekend, I would expect them to be on the pitch for about two hours afterwards afterward celebrating. <laughs> need, need to be forcibly removed. Doing the slowest lap of honour <laughs> around the parky Scarlets. I think they'll probably be due to fly back pretty quickly after the yeah. game, win or lose. So. Mm. Well, yes, that's, that's probably something that a lot of people don't realise afterwards. For most, Europe, especially European games, they fly straight back after the game. Like, they're straight mm. onto the bus after the game and away to the airport. Yeah, back like home they, they did actually stay in Clannathley for the Pro 14 game, but I believe that they are coming home straight away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Adam will be still be there. So. security is in airports these days. You don't want to <laughs> run tight. No. Kyle McNeely asks, is the perception about the standard of Pro 14 officiating correct? Is it any worse than previous years? And do you have insight into what the league are doing to ensure consistency in decisions as Johnny flips over to his full page of lists about I, his I wa- notes just I, wake us up when you're done I walked into the office and Johnny had this article up and I just knew exactly what he was researching and why <laughs> so and I'm just going to let go. you take it away I like that you, uh, you let all the people know that I do research these things <laughs> as off the cuff as my remarks often seem um, well I suppose the first point really is the it's interesting who is making criticisms, or it's interesting to me who has been making criticisms of Pro 14 referees, because it's people who have worked in other competitions. Mm. Like the first one, really, that um, I suppose everybody took notice of was Richard Cockrell, who's coming Did in. Did he criticise a referee? Well, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, he's coming in from the Pro Four, or the Premiership and compared the standards of refereeing and was not happy. Now we've seen John Mulville compare the standards of refereeing. Um, to what he's used to, and again, not happy. Um, Wayne Pivak um, was asked about this recently and said that really all all he wants and all the other coaches want is consistency. The different or the difficulty with consistency in the Pro 14 is the fact that you have so many different unions providing referees, so it's tough to get that consistency. Like one thing the Pro 14 actually did this year was they had sort of camp for referees um one it was one team one culture or one team one something um <laughs> something catchy that makes them feel like they're a united group yes trying to give that feeling of them being a united group rather than five different um groups all thrown together um so that i mean that is something that they're trying to do and trying to develop and when Kyle asks about, is it worse than previous years? I don't think so. I think you've maybe just got more outspoken coaches in the league this year. Mm. You know, there are coaches who you would ask after a particularly egregious refereeing decision and would just say, you know, we, we're, we don't want to talk about referees. There's been a fair few Ulster coaches over the years who would not have entertained going on such rants or being so forthright in their views about referees. Um, I suppose to answer the second part of the question, what are they doing? So they've actually cha- the Pro 14 have actually changed quite a lot on what they're doing with referees. 
recently. So Greg Garner's come in, um, the former Premiership referee, and he's now acting as the elite referee manager. He was the person that uh, John Melville, we believe, was referencing when he said that he'd received the email that the first three games of their season have been refereed wrongly. So they brought in um, a five-year plan, which sounds familiar. Everyone around here loves a five-year plan. Absolutely. Want <laughs> um, the referees to become the best referees in the world. <laughs> in, uh, in an effort to bring in some consistency. Uh, they've Actually, they've increased the money as well, um, up to about a million um, from what they give to the unions for referee developments. And they put in a different system of reviews as well. So the performance review will now involve Greg Gardner um, having a conference call with the union heads about how their referees have done. Independent adjudicators will assess each referee's performance. And then on the Wednesday of the week, they'll um, that feedback will be relayed to the referee. So everything's assessed and everything's graded and... The Pro 14 themselves have data on how good they these independent adjudicators believe every referee has been in every game, which is only a recent thing that they've started doing. So, I mean, they are making steps to try and get that consistency, but I, I do feel like, because Adam actually raised the point last week, I do feel like the consistency is the issue when you have referees coming from such varied cultures. And especially yeah. the referee that I suppose were sparked this conversation is South African. Obviously, South Africans, if you watch Super Rugby, referee the game in a different way, and that, like, that's been the case for ever. You know, you, whenever touring sides would be refereed by local referees, that was always an issue. As what, as much as the hometown decisions, it was how differently the game is refereed in different parts of the world. Because rugby's not like football. Rugby's a game of interpretation. Football, most things are black and white. By and large, is something a free kick? Is something a penalty? Was something handball? Whereas if you're talking about things like the breakdown, it's it's massively mm-hmm. different because it's all it is all mm-hmm. down to interpretation. And yeah, you you bring in questions such like as like how long does a player have to be on the ball before you call yeah. the team for holding on, or how much of an effort does a player have to be making to get out of a ruck? to not be called for not rolling away or something like that. But as we, as we keep saying, as Johnny has said many times there, but it is the key point, you just want consistency. If every referee in the Pro 14, this is a very drastic example, but if every Pro 14 referee didn't referee, you know, in the side at a ruck, as long as there's consistency, that's, that's important. Now, as I said, that's an extremely drastic example, but just... A, as long as you know, if you're paying one team for going in the side at a ruck, if the other team does it, you have to be penalising them for exactly the same thing because not a, no referee in the world is going to see everything. I remember there was an interview with a ref years ago, like a, a retired ref, and he said there's something illegal at every single ruck. It's determining what, you, it's determining what you're going to uh, penalise. And it's stuff that like influences the game, but then it's finding the consistency to make sure that you're mm. always penalising that specific offence. And that I think as long as you got consistency, I, I think yeah, most coaches would be happy. Ulster fans should be delighted with um, Stuart Barry's consistency. He's refereed two of their games. The opposition coach has been raging both times, <laughs> and Ulster have won three penalties. 
You'll be getting a nice Christmas card in the mail this year. (laughs) You should be on everyone's Christmas card list around here. (laughs) Select15 asks, well, he asked last week, and uh, when I was copying and pasting over the questions, I didn't do it right, so I missed his question. So apologies for that, but we ask it this week. Do you think that with all the accolades Ireland have, and uh, when they're pushing for the number one ranking, that a city the size of Dublin should have another professional team? You essentially split Leinster in two, I suppose. That's what I took from it. Leinster yeah. one and Leinster two. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you joke, but that's essentially the crux of why there is an issue there. Call because on the Leinster Tigers, just annoy everybody, because it would be so similar to Leinster. <laughs> like, no, wait, who are they playing? What? <laughs> um, it's funny, because like this conversation um, is one that was had in the GAA about um, 10 or 11 months ago. Of it was basically suggested, mm. I think in, in an Irish, it's obviously been suggested other places, but in an Irish Indo column that Dublin GAA should be split in two. And I think it got enough traction that the GAA actually came out and spoke about it. And like one of the things that they focused on was this idea of people having short memories. So people were talking about um, whether Dublin's dominance was bad for the GAA. Um, over the last six or seven years I suppose and like the thing that the the GAA's response to this was well Dublin won won all Ireland League between 83 and 2011 so you can't be too short term in this Mm, because what happens if you split a team in two and then for all their for all the inherent benefits that they have because they're Dublin and they have that population base and they are able to get better sponsorship money in because of all of these things of what happens if they end up being or if five years down the line they both end up being rubbish like that you just unite them again with John, the <laughs> <laughs> no, they're Dublin just leave them in two couldn't take close to a border pool there <laughs> um, I think Johnny Saxon spoke recently I think about saying that one of the lows of his career was 2015-16 like just after the World Cup when Leinster finished bottom of their European pool mm. we're still only in 2018 <laughs> you know for for as good as Leinster have been that's how long ago it was since they were bottom of their pool Yeah, and you can obviously understand where it's coming from because they've been so good you look at the fact that they're essentially a reserve team with one sort of first choice player can go and put 50 on the Dragons at the weekend and you look at that talent coming through and it doesn't feel like it's ever going to stop but for me it would be outweighed by something you're already chipping away at parts of the traditional aspects of rugby and Ireland was in a really fortunate position when they created not created their sides that would become professional entities were already there for them. You know, there was talk even at the time that genuine club sides would represent Ireland in European competition. You would have had, you know, Ballymena, Bambridge, Ballinahinch, whatever. But it was so easy for Ireland to say, we're going to have our four provinces. They already exist they already have the supporter base. We're just going to make them professional teams. And then you look at all the problems that Wales have had with identity and identity towards their regions and the difficulties that they have there. 
like you would lose that if you just mm. created these two teams that are from Leinster. Neither one of them's really Leinster, even though they're both representing Leinster. Because I don't know. I mean, you can <coughs> split them into north and south, but you're really looking at that's sort of a Russell Carroll Kelly type divide. I don't think it's a real. Yeah. Uh, I don't think it's a real rivalry type of thing. You know. Yeah. Maybe let's come back in three or four years and when Leinster have won every competition well, yeah. going between here and now. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> if by then they've won like five European Cups in a row. Then. <laughs> but then even that's, that's the same thing, you know, because then they would be where Dublin are now in the GAA. Yeah, yeah. Just, it just, actually happens in ladies' golf, which nobody will care about, but ladies' <laughs> club golf, Leinster are splitting two. But just, just to play devil's advocate a wee bit, having a team that dominates isn't necessarily a bad thing if it happens for two or three years, there's your benchmark for everyone else. There's your benchmark to say, okay, Leinster can go do that. You guys go do the same. You want to be the best in Europe? You go match Leinster. Or you go, you go, go one better than Leinster. Mm. So in, in many ways, you, you have set the benchmark as opposed to, you know, well, Leinster the benchmark in the Pro 14 and Saracens are the benchmark in Europe as it maybe was a couple of years ago. Now you just have Leinster are the benchmark, right? Mm. Go go meet that. Yeah, it's a bit like asking, suppose, should uh, Tiger Woods have been given a half set of clubs from, from like, 98 to 2005? I think the thing <laughs> is that people don't necessarily like the teams that win everything and we've seen that with Saracens, but they do also watch them. Mm. Um, it doesn't yeah. you know people don't switch it off it's it's an imperfect example given the amount of um, checks and balances inserted into the NFL to ensure parity but people don't like the Patriots but people watch the Patriots and people talk about the Patriots mm. next time you mention NFL I think I'm just going to cut it out be honest, I'm sick of it. Dark Side hey, the Green Bay Packers <laughs> lost their head coach at the I'll weekend. <laughs> Dark Side Light Side asks if the recent early retirements slash the release of Rodney are in part at least a freeing up of budget. Who's in the shopping list for this or next season? Which I do feel like we've discussed before, but nonetheless. Oh, he also says that uh, he doesn't want us to just say like who we think they should get, but do we have any inside tracks? Which I certainly don't. Somebody with an Irish granny or grander, probably. No, I mean, look, the thing about it is all these retirements and people leaving, the landscape has shifted so much over the last 18 months that they're not, these aren't freeing up budget. This is how do we make the money back that we're losing? Because you're trying to operate in the black or something close to the black. Ulster have done that historically. One of the few rugby clubs about that are, have been doing that. But the projections are now that they're not going to be doing that. So you're eating into your surplus. So anything that you're spending, or sorry, anything that you're saving counteracts the fact that you're now losing money. It's not like, you know, whenever Piatai was um, announced as going to Bristol, or even the salaries of Pinar Jackson which were hefty and haven't been replaced. You can discount Trimble and Bow and Payne because they were all in central contracts. And Ulster haven't had them replaced by players on central contracts. There's only two now. So again, that's eating into the budget somewhat, almost the fact that they retired because you're having to replace them with players that you're paying for yourself. We're just not going to see 
big name acquisitions. I don't think the key is more almost anonymous players with Irish ancestry. Mm. Fair. And uh, yeah, it's the same with people like Will Allison that would do okay. Just finally with our listener questions then, and very quickly, Stephen McCormick asks, what business case would you guys put to the management of the Belfast Telegraph to encourage a decision to become a sponsor of Ulster Rugby again? Sponsor pitches, an interesting topic. What <laughs> would we say about pitches for sponsorship? Say that we're an awful lot cheaper to sponsor. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> we'll take a sponsor for considerably less of the cash. <laughs> So if any other companies want to sponsor us, just get in touch. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> club round up then. Yeah, let's move this on. Um, <laughs> looking back at last week in Division 1B, it's all tied at the top with the top five sides separated by just two points. Malone stayed top despite Banbridge winning their Ulster Derby 21-11 at Rifle Park. That keeps Banbridge third. Ballon the Hinch are up to fourth after they won 27-16 away to Old Wesley at Donnybrook. City of Armagh suffered a 24-17 defeat away to Buccaneers but did at least pick up a losing bonus point. However, they dropped to sixth. And Ballymena have a second win of the season as they got a bonus point in their 28-14 win over Old Belvedere. However, they are still three points adrift at the bottom of the table. In Division 2A, Queen's University were narrowly beaten 24-17 by third place Navan, which keeps uh, Queen's fourth. In Division 2B, Rainey came out on top in a low-scoring Ulster derby against Belfast Harlequins at Hattrick Park, winning 10-7 to move up to fourth, while Quinn stay eighth. While Dungannon were soundly beaten 28-3 at Wanderers and dropped to ninth. In Division 2C, Omaakis had to settle for a losing bonus point in their 23-17 loss at Bruff, which keeps them fourth. Bangor picked up a 12-10 road win at Seapoint to move them closer to the top of the table in fifth, while City of Derry also picked up a home win against Tomond that sees them stay seventh. That finished 17-13. And in the Women's All-Ireland League, Cook suffered a 17-8 loss at Blackrock, which keeps them in fourth. And the fixtures for this weekend. In Division 1B, leaders Malone travel to 7th place Old Wesley. Banbridge are away at 5th place St Mary's. Balamina welcome Balna Hinch to Eaton Park in this week's Ulster Derby. And City of Armagh are at home to 2nd place Nace. In Division 2A, Queen's University's tough stretch continues as they welcome Cashel to the dub. In Division 2B, Rainey travel to 6th place Sunday's Well. Belfast Harlequins welcome bottom side Scaries to Derrimore. And Dungannon are at home to league leaders Greystones. In Division 2C, Oma are home to 9th place Seapoint. While Bangor travel to top side Ballina. And City of Derry are away at 3rd place to Middleton. And in the Women's All-Ireland League, it's a rematch from last week. As Cook welcome Blackrock to Shaw's Bridge on Saturday at 5pm all the other games kick off at half past two on Saturday. Bit of a missed opportunity from Maloon there, really, at home, to put a wee bit of uh, light between themselves and the rest. Oh, no, they were away. Oh, they, oh sorry, they were away. Sorry, I don't know why, but it was Maloon. You did say Rifle Park, too. It's coming back to me. <laughs> Plus, Nace lost as well, so... Yeah, there's yeah. not really too much damage, but it would have been a chance to stretch away a wee bit. But, but it's going to be tied at the top of 1B. You've got five very talented sides there, including St Mary's, who um, they've been on a really good run recently. If they hadn't had that sort of shaky start to the season, they I think they would be top. So, and City of Armagh only three points behind. Uh, well, like, third, ex- third place. Too. Exactly. You know, so 
City of Armagh are a team who have done incredible work and I don't think anyone was expecting them to be challenging for promotion this year. You know, you, you come up from 2A and you just sort of consolidate your position for one year. But they've had a very strong start to the season, so um, if they can keep that challenge going, you never know what might happen, especially for a side that do without any Ulster representation in their team as well, which is absolutely fantastic to mm. see them doing yeah, so well. Absolutely. Well, that's pretty much us for this week. We're running over on time. So in one word to finish, are Ulster going to win this weekend? Nah. No. Lovely. Very optimistic <laughs> as usual. From Jonathan Bradley. Thank you very much. From Adam McKendry. Cheers, guys. And from me, Gareth Hanna. Thanks for listening.